you're listening to Radio Taiwan International. I'm Sharon Lin, and welcome back to my show, Last Debatable. Today, we are picking up where we left off with dress historian Kenna Liebes. Make sure to check out the previous episode titled, Corsets Are Not What You Think If You Haven't. Alright, have you heard of another term called stays? So which one comes first, corsets or stays? We are kicking off today's episode with this question and talk more about historic dress. Also, a final burning question, are there any movies and dramas out there that have good portrayals of historic dress? Let's find out more with Kenna. And also, check out our RTI YouTube channel and Instagram at RTI English for video highlights. I'll see you there! So, okay, corsets and stays. That's which comes first? So, yeah. Great question. This is actually a really complex question to answer properly because a lot of it's based in the terminology, but very simply, stays came before corsets. If we're talking about a garment that is like what we would consider a corset today, so it has some form of boning or stiffening, and it's meant to support the body in some way. Um, it There's kind of a, it's a tripartite system here. We start around sometime in the 16th century with what we call pairs of bodies, uh, which is basically an early corset, but not with boning or anything like that. And then that slowly develops into what was called stays and then what was called a corset. Um, and you'll notice that those first two things, the bodies and the stays are pluralized. And then the corset is just a singular word. And that is because the thing that eventually that that started it all, that kind of kicked it all off, was this garment that was in two halves. So it would open in the back and in the front. And so it is one garment, but it is a pair, much like we call a pair of pants. And I think it's a good segue to talk about like why under like having the right undergarment for, for the era that you're living, it, it really matters because it, it really it gives you the right silhouette, not the size, but the silhouette. So let's talk about why does having the right silhouette matter in like back in the day? Um, could you maybe give us an example of a historic era? Yeah, so that one of the jobs of, of a corset is to smooth your body, essentially, and have a smooth base for your clothing to be laid on top of. So that is why the type of corset and the shape that it gives is so important in any historic era. Very, very generally, I mean, from kind of 1500 to, let's say, 1800, that's, again, very rough, is this very conical shape where the bust is almost flattened. Um, and that's usually these are called pairs of bodies or stays depending on on the year. Going into the 19th century, we suddenly have this, this Regency or uh, Empire silhouette that everything becomes a column. So you don't see the natural waist at all. And the waist gets drawn up right until beneath the bust. And then coming into the mid-19th century, the waist starts to matter again. Kind of 1830s to 1850s, you find this very defined waist. And so that's what that's what a lot of people refer to as, as a wasp waist sometimes. Um, and it's essentially not only the support of the bust matters, but supporting these very heavy skirts and lots of layers of petticoats of skirt to get the appropriate circumference. And after that, so any anything, anytime you want a, a dress essentially to fit over, you know, an 1850s, 1860s, 1890s silhouette, you need the proper corset shape because that is what the dress is designed around, and that's what it's supposed to emphasize or de-emphasize. Women still wear boned undergarments today. They just don't think of them in the same like breath that they think of Victorian corsetry, but they're very much, you know, that was the ancestors of, of what we have today. So 
I've heard some people uh, asking about, okay, when I go to museums, they see all these like uh, extant undergarments or historic dress that uh, survived through the era. And one question that I hear a lot is, they all look so small. Does that mean that people were quote unquote both differently back then? Or they, especially for women's dress, they are so small. Does that mean that they are, you know, like trying to lose weight? And it's, tell us about this. Like, why uh, do we see uh, for example, smaller garments surviving uh, throughout history? Yeah, great question. And honestly, this is the question that uh, propelled me into doing a master's degree and then a, a PhD <laughs> because I'm so, it's so near and dear to my heart. The basic answer is survival bias, which is the process of items essentially being disproportionately affected by the ravages of history. <laughs> it's a very poetic way to say this, that... Um, items that are going to be, they're going to fit more people or they're going to be used for longer um, are going to be, they're going to be used. They're going to be used to pieces and they're going to disappear. They're going to be thrown out. Um, items that don't fit people or they only fit people for a short amount of time, like imagine a prom dress, a wedding dress, those, they're not going to be used and they might even be saved if there's extra sentimental value. And of course, they're connected to life events that occur when you're quite young and you have a better figure than probably you're ever going to have again just because of how human bodies work. Um, and so those are the items that are saved, the very small yeah. kind of... So, so it's not because items. people were smaller back then. No, it's not. Absolutely not. And there was a, I mean, there was a roaring secondhand trade. If we think of thrifting nowadays, exactly the same back then, except to a greater degree because people valued clothing more and they weren't going to throw them out quite to the same degree as we do today with fast fashion. Another thing about small, like people being very small, is we we see all of these old photos from, say, the Victorian era, and people would probably might notice that the waist, especially of, the, of women, are pretty small, but there are some secrets behind that. Yeah, so this is actually also part of what I'm researching for my dissertation. <laughs> in some cases, it is it is the truth. That is what someone looked like, um, whether it was their natural body or they were just corseting really, really tightly. However, in many, many cases, it's Victorian Photoshop. It is the equivalent of what we do today. Say it with, again. Uh, with programs, Victorian Photoshop. Um, good old, good old. And uh, it's it's really interesting because in a lot of these images, if you just if you if you know not to take them at face value and you look a little bit closer, you can actually see, for example, fuzzy areas around a woman's waist where it's been edited and on the either at the negative plate or the positive print uh, stage of the photography, the the retoucher went in and just carved out a little bit of waist or made her arms slimmer or removed double chins. I mean, it's it extends beyond weight and even to things like uh, cleaning uh, acne up or shadows under eyes or removing the the frizzy hair. Um, it was all all part and parcel of this process. But it is very, very common to see evidence of of like wastes being carved away. But it's also like it was pre-production. And like during the photo, I mean, women were told to stand in particular ways to look in. I mean, it's things that we just do. I don't want to say instinctively, but we do just as like part and parcel of photography nowadays. It's like, oh, catch me at my best angle. They were absolutely doing that back then, too. So and they were the photographers were placing the light sources so that they could, um, you know, the cheekbone would be would be really nicely highlighted and they would look skinnier and they would look slimmer. Um, but it was also I mean, it, it wasn't simply restricted to removing fat. It was also if a woman looked too gaunt, 
Um, maybe a photographer would remove like the collarbone shadows and make her look a little bit more plump. So super, super interesting. But you can't ever assume that when you're looking at a photo, even if it's from like the 1850s or 1860s, like really early photography, that it was unaltered, undoctored, because it probably was fiddled with. And I think one thing that people probably miss out on is to kind of achieve the right silhouette. There is undergarments for sure, but also there used to be a lot of padding involved as well. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I I would call padding a form of undergarment. <laughs> but oh, okay. uh, yeah, so you could have padding either stitched into your garments. So for example, I mean, an example I love is, is if you had scoliosis and your spine was slightly a kilter and you, one of your shoulders was lower than the other when you were standing straight up, for example, you could have a pad sewn into the shoulder of your garment. And I mean, it would be asymmetrical because you were asymmetrical and it would it would uh, it would level out your shoulders. So you could very much you could have a pad sewn in and that could be uh, on your back. It could be on your shoulders. It could be for your bust um, anywhere you need on your corset or on your bodice. And then you could also have removable pieces, depending on maybe what you wanted to wear for the day and how important your silhouette was. I mean, are you just going to school or work or staying at home or are you going to, you know, a fancy evening soiree? So um, things like bum padding and obviously I think people think of bustles a lot and, and hoop skirts as kind of distensions of the female form. And that's very valid. That is absolutely a form of adjusting your silhouette to the fashionable ideal. But it's very easy to overlook these these minor, honestly minuscule forms of padding that women used. We really still, I mean, this is in my my own personal crusade to to keep relating things, to keep making clothing relatable to us in in 2023. We still use padding all the time. Um, I mean, yeah, like little little silicone inserts into bras and stuff like that, and just to to give yourself a little more oomph. It's certainly something that's still on our radar. Personally, I think it's really important to have the, the right um, facts about history, um, since we're talking about historic dress, about historic dress, instead of sort of pushing this like modern aesthetic point of view. And also, it's good to know that like people back then, they were they were really smart in creating either illusions or make things work. Uh, for their needs and thinking about their social class as well. This is a big question, but why do you think there is so much misinformation about historic dress? That's a great question. I think, I mean, without like sitting back and, and writing an essay and really seriously considering my sources and all that jazz, I think that it's part of, part of it is because clothing is so relatable, because we all wear clothing every day, it is so easy to to see something and make immediate comparisons and go, oh, but I wouldn't have been comfortable in that. And it's just, it's so easy to to imagine yourself in their shoes, quite literally, um, and to to wonder how they ever could have done that. And I think it's it's very different with other forms of material culture. But with clothing, it's like, oh, I still have the same body. Like, they could have put that on me and I would have hated it or I would have loved it or this is what I would have done in that. Um, and it's just it's easier to make those connections and to also make assumptions. So I think part of it also goes back to what I was saying about kind of uh, sexy storytelling, shall we say? Especially thinking about all the countless interviews flying around all there with like n <laughs> nothing on them personally, with famous, wonderful actors talking about when they were wearing corsets for their period movies. It made them so uncomfortable. Their organs shifted, question mark things like this going around. So. 
Yeah, I mean, and it's in that exactly. It's it's a very particular case of I mean, they're not they're certainly not wearing the right corset for their bodies, their body size, their body type. They're not wearing it the right way. They don't have the right undergarments. They don't have the right overgarments. They're probably not being like very carefully attended to by the designers of those corsets to make sure they're fitting them and working. It's all sorts of things, but it's very much it's tied in with the industry as well as, you know, just their ignorance, essentially. Thanks to touch on that, let's talk a little bit about um, how corsets were made back then. It's a very specific professional skill that basically when you have a corset, it really fits you. Yeah, it's definitely. So this is something where social class comes into play, that there were certainly people wearing corsets that were not made to fit them and that probably injured them. Um, But there were also different kinds of corsetry. So if we're thinking of the late 18th, early 19th century, for example, maybe a working woman would be wearing a leather corset which wouldn't have any form of additional boning or anything like that. It would be leather cut in the shape of a corset that had some some scored lines on it, and it would support her, but it would be a very cheap and fast way of making that support garment. It would still be in the shape, but it would be like totally different construction. And um, and then you have people coming into the in throughout the 19th century, coming into this this ready made era where they would be of a social class where they would not have the means to buy a new corset that is perfectly fitted to them, but they had the means to buy a new corset that was, you know, mass manufactured, standardized to an imaginary woman's ideal shape, obviously, um, not like a real person at all, but very much they're they're fitting an average. And so they're going to be wearing a corset that is perhaps their correct size, but it's an average that isn't actually made to fit their body. So it could still potentially be uncomfortable. Um, and so there's a whole range of experiences and, and nuance really about the history of corsetry that when you see, you know, an actress talking about her punishing experience wearing corsets on a movie set, it's just failing to capture it. I mean, like, it probably was horrible for her to wear that because it's not made for her and she's not used to wearing something like that. But in using those moments as shock value, it's really, it's completely overriding all these individual histories of of women of various social classes um, that we're just ignoring them essentially and the possibilities that they had their their realities of of living and, and having to wear corsetry and, and having to wear clothing and interact with society and all that jazz there's a lot of nuance that needs to be captured yeah you put it so nicely and there's definitely so much nuances and since we talked so much about like what was sort of like wrongly represented in movies and tv shows but there are some well, it was a pretty good ones out there that we both have watched. Like the first one that comes into mind uh, is Emma from 2020, I believe, uh, the movie Emma starring Anya Taylor-Joy. Personally, I really liked the costuming inside the movie. And actually, I did recognize some pieces that are surviving garments you can see in museums like the V&A. Caveat this, I've only seen it once, but I have seen the costumes a lot more than that because they come up online. The women's costumes in that are fabulous. Men's costumes, they're not quite as fabulous. They're still pretty good. <laughs> but yeah, it's always so fun as a fashion historian, as someone who really looks at extant garments, so antique garments that survived from the period. Um, like, for example, Emma's, I'm not sure if it has a name in the movie, but colloquially, we call it the strawberry dress. It's like this this yes. red net gauze dress in the collection of, I think, the Victoria and Albert Museum. Yeah, I think the V&A, and, yeah. Um, I, re- and they be- I recognize that one. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's, it's fabulous to see because it really, it feels... It feels good. I mean, it feels like the person who was designing it really cared and wanted to replicate this. And it feels like, uh, what what do they call it, an Easter egg when you see something in movies that's like just meant for a particular special audience that knows too much. 
it's especially nice to see that in movies that uh, didn't really like they departed from the historical accuracy quite a bit. But when they put in something like that, you're like, oh, they knew what they were doing. This was all intentional. And that immediately makes me feel better about whatever departures they've taken. <laughs> Uh, I think another show that we talk about is Gentleman Jack. Yes, I, I remember seeing the, I guess, the the intro sequence as kind of a trailer when that first came out. And it is, I mean, it's full of these detail shots of like a corset busk and like things being put on and laced. And it was just the loving care with which that was scripted, shot, produced. It was just absolutely stunning to me. And I like I saw that and I was like, oh, this is going to be good production. <laughs> And in many cases, you see a period drama and it just feels like costume instead. It doesn't feel like it's real clothing that people, people live to Like rain? <laughs> I, I just, when I, when I saw promotion, like promotional photos of that show, I just, again, nothing on the team, actors personally, but just I personally, I wouldn't want to watch that because whatever they're wearing, it really pulls me as an audience member away from the era that they're trying to depict and it's just it, it's um, not not good. <laughs> so I would steer away from shows like that. It's not cohesive. I think it wasn't even trying. So... <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I, I admit I only watched part of that because one of the characters was named Kenna. <laughs> and it was so weird <laughs> to hear my name from someone else's clothes. <laughs> but I was I was quite, quite uh, stymied by the clothing, I will say. So coming back to you a little bit. So what are you currently working on? And could you tell us a little bit more about your research? Yeah, so I, I think I've, I've mentioned enough about my dissertation, honestly, by now. But it's essentially I'm trying to set down what fat women wore in the 19th century. And this is to say I'm using fat as completely, you know, non-judgmental, neutral term just to describe body size. So please Please do not take offense. I know people don't like that term, but as an academic, that is what I uh, that is what I use. So I am looking at what women wore that was when they when their bodies were not necessarily the ideal size or the ideal shape. And so that does include older women. It also includes disabled women um, and kind of just looking at how they navigated the clothing culture of of the time in both England and America. Those research interests have um kind of produced this Instagram account that I've been keeping, which is called Stout Style History. And that's a reference to uh, stout being the accepted term for fatness in kind of the the late 19th, early 20th century. And you make a lot of historic garments by yourself from scratch. So could you t uh, share with us a little bit more? Yeah. So I also run, uh, I call it Kenna Period Sews, and the period is a dot. <laughs> Um, on Instagram, but essentially those are those are also a form of public history, but a much more casual one that really is is more personal because there's a lot of me on it instead of other figures from history. And I really it's important to me to know how historic clothing is made, uh, especially when it was done by hand. But I've come across too many papers and books where where people are just saying things that are frankly inaccurate about how clothing wore or how how it fit or how it was made because they just haven't studied the making process themselves. And for me, I'm such a hands-on person that, oh boy, it gives me a much better idea of how something was made, how it was worn, how it should fit the body. I mean, I mostly make things for my body, but I don't have a, an ideal body. So it's it's just super helpful in in understanding. And it's very much part of kind of this experimental archaeology movement and uh, and embodied making. 
Well, Kenna, thank you so much and all the best to your upcoming research and publications. Thank you so much, Sharon, for inviting me. And it was really wonderful to talk to you. <laughs>